everyone, and welcome to Hello City, a lighthearted educational podcast about the built environment. I'm your host, Lisa Dunaway, AICP Lead AP. And today I'm going to talk about writing a better RFQ or request for qualifications. Sometimes you'll see RFP instead, which is request for proposals. There's some other ones maybe, but RFQ and RFP are the things you see the most. But before I get into what those are and how to write better ones, I got listener mail that was very cool from a listener named Steven, who was writing in in response to episode six, Listen to My Money Talk. And that was about what factors people should consider when negotiating a salary for a new job. And Stephen pointed out a couple things that I hadn't touched on. And the first one I probably should have because I've had jobs that paid at different times. But he was suggesting that listeners estimate expenses for the month based on how often they're paid as well as other factors. So there is a big difference if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you're being paid twice per month or once per month. So I'm going to interject into Steven's email a little bit here. If you are paid once a month, especially when you are young and don't have any savings, or maybe you're a little older and don't have any savings, no shame there. Uh, If that's the case for you, it may be hard for you to make your financial obligations until you can get yourself into a good routine or a good pattern. And that may take a while. So let's say you're only paid once a month, but perhaps your credit card is due three weeks into the month. By that point, if you're not careful with your budget, you may not be able to make your credit card payment because you've got you know, just a week to go and you've been buying your food and paying your rent and all of those things. It can make a difference whether you're paid on the 31st of the month versus the first of the month. It can make a difference when maybe your student loan payment is due or your car payment. Those are the big expenses these days, right? Your rent or your mortgage, your car payment, your student loan. And then if you're like me and you put everything on your credit card so you get points and then you pay it off every month, that's um, actually my biggest expense because it's adding up a whole bunch of big expenses and little expenses into one. So depending on when those things come due in relation to when you are paid, that can be a strain financially given how the timing may work out. So to return to Stephen's email, there's a difference between being paid twice per month or every other week. So he's saying, if you detect your estimated expenses for the month and divide the remaining salary by two, it will be higher than the actual paycheck because there are 26 pay periods per year on a two week pay cycle. If you are just paid twice per month, so let's say you're paid on the 15th and the 30th, that's kind of common. In that case, there would be 24 pay periods. So if you're going from a situation where you were paid monthly and now you're paid twice a month, you're gonna have to figure out how that changes things for your finances. Or if you're paid every other week 
versus twice a month that actually splits your salary up into different chunks. So that's something to consider. There is a little bit of a difference between a 24 pay period year and a 26 pay period year, especially when you're living lean and you live paycheck to paycheck. That slight difference in those paychecks might be a very big deal to you. The other thing that Stephen was pointing out was pension contributions. So if you work in the private sector, you're gonna be doing all that 401k stuff that I was talking about in episode six. But if you work in the public sector, you are likely to have a pension. And there isn't flexibility on deduction amounts when you have a pension. So let's say you are expecting to contribute something to your retirement initially because you needed to prioritize paying off a high interest student loan. Yeah, that's a good call. But you also want to make sure that you are putting enough back from retirement early on, even if it means you have to sacrifice, you know, buying furniture or buying a nicer car. It really is important to pay yourself for your future as well as pay off those high interest student loans. I've read quite a few books about financial things in the last few years, just as I was preparing to go into business for myself. And a lot of people will say, pay yourself first. So even when I've had a small paycheck come, uh, you know, as a payment from a client, since I've been out on my own, the first thing I do is put 10% into my retirement, no matter what, even if it's a small check, even if I've had a kind of lean month, that's still what I do. And if that means I sacrifice other things, then so be it. So don't let yourself fall into the trap of thinking that you'll start contributing more to your retirement someday. It really doesn't get easier just because you're making more money. If it did, then all these people wouldn't be in student loan debt when they're in their 40s and 50s and even 60s, right? So you want to make sure you are living small and paying yourself and paying off those student loan debts while it's easier to do it. It's just so much easier before you get married or have kids, you know, you get older and you start to have health problems and your health insurance probably isn't great even if you have it. So there are so many expenses that come up when you are older and you, you've never heard anyone say that they wish they had put less back for retirement. No one has ever said that. So if you were expecting to contribute a small amount to your initial retirement funding, it may be something different than you expect if you were going to be contributing to a public pension thing. I don't know a ton about that, except I do know that uh, my husband works for a municipal government and he actually has options for how much he can put in, but the municipality does not contribute to it. So that's also something you can't always assume that your employer is going to match something. I think it's probably pretty rare these days for a municipality to match your contributions. But just consider that the public pension contribution rates may be fixed. So if you had budgeted for yourself that you were only going to put back 3%, well, first of all, shame on you if that was all you were going to do. But it may be more like you have to put in 6 or 7% per paycheck. And you can look those rates up online. 
Steven says they are generally published online. So that's kind of cool to know. You could look it up before you go to work for a certain place. Stephen also pointed out that he did not negotiate his salary his first year since his employer offered him a salary that was just shy of the top of their publicized range. And I think he feels bad and feels like he made a mistake, but that's really common because those ranges are so insidious. I would love for someone to explain to me why people do that because if, if you hire somebody in and you're already setting them up to feel bad about themselves because you've given them what they know to be the lower end of a salary range, like you're hurting morale from day one. Why even publish a salary range? Or you're gonna give somebody the top of the range and then make them feel like they can't negotiate when they probably can. And that's insidious to me too. However, Steven did negotiate a 5% raise based off his record after he had been at his job a year, which is great. So that probably made up for whatever salary he didn't negotiate when he was hired. 5% is pretty good. I mean, that's more than cost of living. That's more than twice the cost of living. So in that case, I would take that raise and just sock that right into retirement and act like you didn't even get it. Personally, that's what I would do. Having said all that, let's get into RFQ, RFP stuff. So RFQ is request for qualifications. RFP is request for proposals. And they are slightly different things on paper. But in reality, they're actually quite different. And I'm seeing a disturbing trend of municipalities publishing RFQs, requests for qualifications, when what they really want is an RFP, request for proposals. And request for proposal, I'm gonna use the same word again, an RFP in many cases is insidious. You are asking someone to give away their ideas for free. And if they pay attention to you and what you end up publishing at the end of that process, if you've stolen their ideas, they can at the very least file an ethics complaint against you, if not more, because that is their intellectual property that they've given to you, whether or not they put a disclaimer in there. I always do these days, a friend of mine who's a great mentor of mine, um, I saw that she always did that, so I thought, I'm gonna start doing that too. Doesn't mean people honor them, but if I were to see ideas that I've sent out in someone's plan when I wasn't the consultant selected, I would absolutely file an ethics complaint against every AICP involved in that project. Because if you are a municipality and you're requesting for people to give you ideas for free and they give you great ideas that you want to use, but you don't select them, you have no right to use those ideas. So if someone gave you good ideas and you're like, Ooh, that's awesome. Well, then you should have picked them and don't send out an RFQ when what you really mean is an RFP. This is just becoming more and more a problem and it puts consultants in a bad position 
because if you are, let's say, one of three different teams who are interviewing for some sort of comprehensive plan or a downtown revitalization plan or whatever, when you are interviewing with the selection committee, if they're asking you for specific ideas on what you would want to do, what you could do, or they want responses to their ideas, in that interview process, you've already crossed over from RFQ to RFP territory. So if all you sent out was an RFQ, you have to honor that. You should be asking those teams why they can do the job. And maybe you could get them to give you some general ideas. But I have found that selection teams are increasingly expecting interviewees to give very specific ideas for projects before the interview is even done. If you want those ideas, you needed to have sent out an RFP in the first place. And then you need to honor the ethical obligations that you have for that RFP. Not even, I'm not even talking about the legal stuff because I'm not a lawyer. Just ethically, chances are if you are the head of a planning department, you are an AICP. But whether you are or not, as a planner, you should be honoring the fact that you sent out an RFQ and not an RFP. And you cannot ethically ask for people to give you ideas for what they would do to the nth degree. That comes after you have sussed out people's qualifications and you realize this is the team that has the best potential to do what I need. I see they've done some cool stuff elsewhere in the past, so I realize they have the potential to do cool stuff for me. And then you can suss out those very specific actionable things that you want done during contract negotiations. Now related to that is the selection committee. And I mentioned them a minute ago. And a selection committee typically doesn't even have planners in it. It could have people who are on the BZA, the Board of Zoning Appeals. It can have people from the plan commission. Maybe the staff of your local planning office is on it, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're just treated as a sort of consultant or an expert where they can just give their opinion to the selection committee. So the selection committee could be anybody in your town. It just depends on who gets appointed to it or who volunteers for it. They may have no knowledge of planning and what different plans entail. So if you have a selection committee and let's say you have them choosing a firm to do your next comprehensive plan and none of them have been involved in a comprehensive plan before. Maybe your town hasn't had a comprehensive plan update in like 30 years. I mean, I've seen this all the time. It's, it's not all that uncommon for comprehensive plans to be extremely out of date. So then you get a selection committee that, you know, maybe they weren't even born when your last comprehensive plan came out, let alone like know what the process is. It is extremely unfair to your consultants and it's, I mean, frankly, it's a waste of your time in addition to consultants time if you have an uneducated selection committee. So if you are the head of a planning department and you have put out an RFQ for planning services, but you don't pre-educate your selection committee before the interviews start, 
you're wasting everybody's time because 99 times out of 100, a selection committee has unrealistic expectations of what a comprehensive plan or a downtown revitalization plan or a corridor plan, what those actually mean. I have been in an interview where this happened, but I hear this complaint a lot from other private consultants. They get into an interview where one member of the selection committee expects that they're gonna get $50,000 worth of free civil engineering consulting as part of a comprehensive plan. Well, no, we are not gonna throw a corridor study into your comprehensive plan and not charge you for it. So when you're the consultant, trying to answer those questions to the selection committee, it makes you look bad. It makes you look like you're trying to sell them short because they don't realize that's not standard. They don't realize a comprehensive plan is the place where you set up something like the need for a corridor study or a downtown revitalization plan or a sub area plan. The selection committee needs to know ahead of time what is traditionally typically and ethically involved in doing a comprehensive plan or whatever the case may be, whatever kind of plan it is. As the, as the head of your planning department, it is your responsibility to pre-educate your selection committee. That way you can have a more efficient and effective selection process. The interviews are gonna go better. It's not gonna make the consultants look bad. It's not gonna set up unrealistic expectations for your selection committee, and you all can get right into the meat of the qualifications for your consultants instead of wasting 15 minutes of the consultant's time when maybe you've only given them an hour to talk to you, trying to just educate people on what a comprehensive plan or whatever kind of plan it is actually means. It's hard to do that on the fly in a way that's not condescending and will immediately set those members of the selection committee against you. Some people can do it, you know, off the seat, fly by the seat of their pants and come off in a way that's very helpful, but I've not seen that happen. It's hard to do that in a way that's not patronizing. The purpose of interviewing is not to educate your selection committee when you are the consultant. It also forces consultants to make promises that they really shouldn't. So if you're going into an interview and your selection committee is asking for things that are not realistic for the type of plan you're interviewing for, you're immediately pitting the consultants against each other on different levels levels outside of the scope that you've proposed and consultants will then feel pressured to start throwing in things that should not be part of that plan in order to make themselves look better and it's a common thing for for firms to do especially bigger firms and that hurts the entire profession Smaller firms may not be able to throw in a bunch of extra stuff for free and nor should they have to because whatever your scope is, that should be what is stuck to. And that leads me into how RFQs are typically written with inherent bias towards big firms in them. And I know people don't mean to do this, but it's just the way that RFQs and RFPs are getting written these days. A lot of selection committees will use a point system. And 
I think that that has the potential to be great because it's striving to rank firms in a more fair manner. However, there's implicit bias in some of those line items. I've seen them before where there are certain categories and there are certain points per category and that all makes sense. But the way that you write those individual line items may actually have a very strong bias towards big firms. So for example, the one that comes up quite a bit is requiring that people have an identical type of plan to what you're asking for within a certain amount of time. So if you're a big firm and you've got 20 or 30 planners, you're constantly spitting out comp plans, revitalization plans, sub area plans. So it's very easy for a big firm to meet that requirement and get all the points for that line item. However, let's consider a small firm or maybe a sole proprietor. If you are a small firm or a sole proprietor, you may not do a comprehensive plan every year or every two years. But let's say you've done 30 comprehensive plans in your career. You may actually be by far the best person interviewing for that plan with the most experience but you haven't done a plan in the last couple years because maybe you only take on one or two big projects a year. Maybe it's just you, maybe it's just you and one or two employees. Your turnover is not nearly as big or as often as the larger firms. So you inherently will get fewer points on that line item just because there was a time requirement, an arbitrary time requirement. And like, what the hell's the difference between two years or three years or four years? It is completely arbitrary to have some sort of time requirement based on that. To be more fair and to not bias your point system towards big firms, the best thing to do is just require experience in related planning. So maybe you have an RFQ out there for a comprehensive plan. I think it's fair to require that someone has done other comprehensive plans and maybe the more they have, the more points you can give them. But consider if someone is a planner, the planning process is very similar no matter what kind of plan you're doing. So let's say you're going to not give people credit for doing the exact kind of plan that you want to do, but they have similar experience, they have the right skill set. Maybe you're going to hire a small firm who has done a lot of sub area plans, downtown revitalization plans, but now they're going for a comp plan with you. Because they're a small firm and their overhead is going to be so low, you know, you're not paying them for big retirement packages and Christmas bonuses and their parking space and getting their meals comped and all that stuff that comes with being an employee of a larger firm. There are all those perks to being a larger firm, but those do not come for free. Those are passed on. Those expenses are passed on to the clients. So if you hire a small firm, you're not paying for all that overhead. You're probably not even you know, paying for their rent. A lot of people work out of their homes like me. So you actually will get far more plan for your money. Let's say you're gonna pay $150,000 for this comprehensive plan. 
If you hire a large firm, you may get $50,000 worth of a plan out of that because their multiplier is two or three times what their hourly rate is. So you're only getting a third of the plan for the price. But let's say you hire a small firm, they can probably do it for a lot cheaper because they don't have that overhead, but you will get more plan for your money. Again, because you're not paying for that overhead. Small firms have a tendency to make plans much more individual to their clients and not copy and paste as much. And I'm saying that because I've read enough plans and seen enough copy paste in my career to realize that this is a, a larger issue than people want to admit. So you could set up your line items in order to give firms credit for being able to do related sorts of plans instead of only the specific type of plan you are putting your RFQ out for. That is another option. Now, I don't blame you if you want a, a firm that can do comp plans and has done 50 of them in the past, but you may be discounting consultants who could do a really good job, probably even a better job, maybe more innovative because they are not mired in their traditions of how they always do a comp plan. You could get something that's much more flexible and adaptive and innovative and modern from a smaller, more flexible firm who doesn't have to answer, you know, to a chain of VPs for every decision that gets made. But if you didn't even get them a chance because they haven't done a ton of that specific sort of plan, then you'll never know that they had all this potential that they could have given to you because they wouldn't have got the points for that category. So I would Keep the point system, but keep your line items more general. Keep them not necessarily vague, but keep them more open-ended in order to allow a bigger diversity of firm types to still make the cut. The other thing that's biased towards big firms is just the amount of paperwork required for some RFQ responses. And I think the least that I've spent responding to an RFQ was like 60 bucks. And that's because I have access to a print shop that charges cost for printing. They don't charge a markup. Most people um, who have to go to like Staples or something will have to pay way more than that just for your, your average RFQ response. So again, if you're a big firm, that's just overhead that's getting eaten up. It's probably costing them cents per page to print those out. But if you're a small firm, dropping $125 for an RFQ response, plus you've probably traveled to that municipality to do the pre-interview, pre-response meeting with them. And then if you do get selected, you're gonna go back again for the interview, that makes things tough on small firms. So the big expense in the response process is the number of copies that you need to make. And it's still very common for municipalities to request multiple hard copies so that everybody on their selection team gets their own hard copy. And I get that as someone who still likes to check books out from a library and I still take handwritten notes, I get that. But again, it is a bias towards big firms if you are requiring tons of hard copies to be mailed. 
pretty much everybody these days has access to a computer. And if someone doesn't have access to a computer, don't put them on your selection committee. You could do this pre-training with your selection committee where you're going to educate them about what that type of plan actually means, but then also just show them how to make notes in their PDF viewer so that you can have your consultants just send PDFs. You're gonna get a better quality product, I think, from them because they won't be as rushed, but also you aren't immediately throwing out smaller firms who maybe just can't afford to send out another response that week or that month or whatever. When people are trying to prioritize their expenses as a small firm, it can be pretty crappy because they maybe want to respond to your RFQ and they might be by far the best consultant that you could get, but you'll never know because they just couldn't afford to send out another RFQ at that time. They've maxed out their budget for that, for that month or whatever. And so they just don't reply and that's unfortunate. But if they had only had to send you a PDF, they could have. It's interesting to me that everybody is all like shop small when it comes to Black Friday, but not when they're talking about consulting firms. And some of the best consultants I know, at least in the state of Indiana, are very small firms or one person shops. They have the best experience, they have the best network, they know everybody, but you know, they can't afford a $4,000 laser printer, so they have to go to Staples to print their stuff out. And that doesn't mean just because they're small, you're gonna get any less good of a plan. I, again, just made the argument that I think you'll get a better plan with a small firm. And I'm not putting big firms down. I have plenty of friends in big firms and I've worked in big firms and they can do great work. But now that I've been from big multi-thousand person firms down to a one person shop, I do realize that you get a better product from small firms or sole proprietorships. The resources available to a big firm does not translate into a better product because they are not necessarily as flexible as a small firm. And you're gonna negotiate all that stuff in the contract stuff. Again, so when you're not paying for all their overhead, you're getting more value, more plan for your money with smaller firms. Now, if you really have somebody in mind, and this is very common now, you should use the opt-out disclaimer that says that you do not have to do shortlist interviews. You can pick your team or the firm that you want based solely on their response to the RFQ. And that would be the nice thing to do. That would be the ethical thing to do in my opinion, not only to save firms all that time and potential expense, but if you really already have this promise to somebody, then just put that little disclaimer, put it on the front page so that people know. It's your little way to say to people, like we already have somebody picked for this. But it's incredible to me in the past six months how many RFQs and RFPs I've seen put, not only like on the state chapter APA page, but on planning.org, the national chapter page, requesting services for a plan. And then I call somebody at a firm and be like, hey, you wanna partner on this? Did you see this? 
and they'll be like, oh, well, I already, I heard so-and-so is going to get it. Or they're, they're, they've already told so-and-so that they're going to get it. And I'm like, then why the hell did they advertise it all over Kingdom Come if they've got somebody in mind? Like, that's just effing rude. So put it where you need to put it to meet your legal obligations. That's fine. But don't advertise it everywhere if you don't have every intention of keeping the playing field fair and even. And certainly don't put it out there and leave out the opt-out disclaimer if you've got somebody already in mind. I think of the RFQs that I looked at in the past six months and talked to somebody about. Some of them I went for on my own. The ones that I went to another firm or another person to team up with at least 50%. I should have kept track, but my guess is that at least 50% someone had already heard the grapevine that so-and-so was going to get it. And then come to find out a month later, yep, that, that team really did get it. So it wasn't a rumor. It was a real thing. So I had a friend who works in a city planning office text me the other day and it was an honest question. This person really was trying to do the right thing. But he texted me and asked me if 10 days was long enough of a turnaround to respond to an RFQ. And I said, no, it is not. <laughs> 10 days? I mean, people might not even see it for the first week. You know, not every firm has somebody checking every RFQ list every day to see what's new out there on the horizon that could be responded to. I am pretty on top of these things. I check these things quite a bit and there are still some that I don't see for a week or, or 10 days because maybe they got published over here, but then this one got published later and I didn't check the first, you know, whatever. So like even people who are pretty on top of stuff and organized might not see it for a few days. And if somebody is a highly in-demand planner, that's the kind of person you want, right? Because they know their stuff. But that also may mean that they don't have time set aside every day to check the 18 different places that you could be publishing that RFQ. So no, 10 days is not enough time. I've seen 14 days. I've responded to things that the time was 14 days and I was able to get it done because my schedule was flexible at that particular two week window enough that I could make the response cut off. Had it been a month before, I wouldn't have been able to do it. 14 days would not have been enough time for me, even 30 days earlier, just given what I had going on at that time. I was too busy. And so that would have, again, disqualified me in a way from responding because I wasn't free at that instant <laughs> that someone wanted a response. But a month later, I was all right and I could do it. So it could mean the difference between you getting the perfect candidate or not if you make your window too short. I think 30 days is really the minimum you should give people. I've seen 60 and that's nice, but that, that may even be too much. I don't know. Like that might make your selection team kind of weary to drag it out that long. 
30 days, 45 days seems to be the sweet spot. Now related to time is the issue of when it's due. Now let's say that you want your responses by the end of the month and the end of the month is a Tuesday. All right. I mean, I guess that's like a fine thing to do Tuesday at 5 p.m. Kind of weird, but if it is the, the last day of the month, that makes for a nice sensible end point. What I've seen a few times recently is weird, weird due times. Not only due date, but due time. And I would love to know like what internal issues these folks had, like what were their requirements and internal deadlines that made them say, Monday at 10 a.m. This is due Monday at 10 a.m. or Monday at 3 p.m. Like Monday is a weird day to have stuff due. So if people have priority mailed you something Thursday, maybe Friday the month or the week before, you may not even get your mail at the time on that Monday that will make that cutoff. You've got to consider when your mail carrier typically shows up in your office. Now, if your mail carrier comes first thing in the morning, that's great. Then you, I guess you can make your due time 10 a.m. But that's just weird to me. Like, Monday is weird regardless. Other days of the week, if that's the last day of the month, I can kind of see it. But consultants do typically expect the due time to be 4 or 5 p.m., depending on when your office closes. So sometimes I'll see 4 p.m. and I'll be like, what? Oh, yeah, their office must close at 4. My husband works for a government department that closes at 4, so I'm like aware that that's a thing. But five o'clock makes plenty of sense because odds are you're gonna get your mail before five o'clock on a certain day. I've seen where the questions that were due for a response before the response is due, there's a question period um, and that's really helpful for consultants. I pretty much always have questions, even for well-written RFQs, but having like another weird due time. I mean, unless you've got something going on, I don't know. It's just weird to me. Like why you see questions due at 10 AM or 11 AM. I mean, if it's noon, I guess that kind of makes sense. Cause it's like lunchtime or whatever. But again, they just seem arbitrary when it's not like 5 PM for things to be due. But please do give your consultants a, Q&A period, give them a certain amount of time, you know, a week or two before the final submission is due to ask you questions and then publish all the questions anonymously and your responses and send them out to all the consultants who have signed up to be on the list or publish them on the website as an addendum to your RFQ. It's completely fair to make your consultants sign a form that they saw the addenda, you know, the questions and the responses. I think that's perfectly fair to do. It's good practice. I recently submitted a response that required that and I 
didn't think that that was burdensome at all. Actually, I saw questions that I was going to ask, didn't ask, got good answers to. So I was, I was glad for it. But if you're not trying to be sneaky and weed out the people who don't read fine print or maybe even bold print, uh, just, just make your due date not the first day of the week and not some weird time in the middle of the day. It creates more reasonable expectations and keeps a more level playing field. Now on to the actual content of the RFQ. It's strange to me that the bigger the municipality is, the worse their RFQs are. <laughs> it's so true. I don't know if it's just because they have so many people, you know, it's too many cooks in the kitchen writing this thing, or if they have so many legal requirements, their lawyers have said, you gotta put all this stuff in, but the bigger the municipality, the longer the RFQ is, which is just a nightmare. But then also the more room for discrepancies and contradictions there are. So I was looking at an RFQ from a pretty big town, big city the other day. And I know what they were trying to do. They were trying to be super clear, but in their efforts to be super clear, they contradicted the hell out of themselves. And it was, it was actually kind of laughable, but it made me not want to respond. Cause I was like, ugh, these people could be a nightmare to work with if they can't even keep their P's and Q's straight, right? So what they did to try to be clear was they had a list. It was like their eight things that they were gonna ask for, okay? And then the following sections were broken out into more detailed descriptions of those eight things or however many it was. Let's say it was eight. The problem was that those detailed descriptions didn't line up with the list of eight. They didn't have the same names or like headings. So it wasn't like one for one. And then actually the list of descriptions, there weren't even eight. There were like seven. There was clearly something missing that they didn't describe in more detail. And then the ones that did line up, like they had the same name or heading, there was something in the original list of eight that was expressed in the list, but then not matched in the more detailed description. So let's give an example. Let's say that you have a, you know, your top 10 list that you're gonna lead off your RFQ with, and one of them is years of relevant experience or number of related projects. Let's say you want a minimum of five related projects on someone's resume. But then when you go into the detailed description for that, you don't mention that five again. Like, first of all, that's the reverse of how it should appear if you're even going to do that. But if you're gonna mention something specific in the short, you know, just preemptive list, here's our top 10 things we want. And then you don't mention it again when things are supposed to be more detailed later on. That's kind of bizarre. So why, and this happened, I've seen this several times recently. The short list at the beginning, 
has a very descriptive detailed requirement in one or more of the items, but then it's not matched later on in the detailed description of that line item, let alone it doesn't even match. The, the descriptions don't even match the list. That came up once recently and that was, oh, I had lots of questions for that uh, person who sent it off and ultimately just didn't even bother with it because I thought I can't deal with people that are this disorganized because I'm a snob, I guess. I'm very organized, so it just, I don't know. It was a red flag. It was a red flag. In that same RFQ, so I'm picking on this, this same RFQ, but I've seen it before. It's not limited to this recent one, but you've got to be clear on what's included in your page limit. I know people think that they're being very clear, but they're often not. You really, I mean, just legally, but also just for the peace of mind of your consultants and maximizing the number of responses that you're going to get, you need to be specific. You need to be clear. It's weird the things people pick to be specific about and then what they forget to be specific about. Page limits, if you're going to make that a thing, you've got to be clear what's included or not. And it's weird if the resumes aren't included, but the team or firm background isn't. Or if you want parts A and B of the contract not included, but part C is included. Like, why are you doing that? I don't really understand why there are page limits unless you just expect that you are going to get 30 responses. I mean, maybe that's gonna happen and that's a lot of pages to go through. I can kind of see that. But I'll see small towns give page limits when I, when I think, like, why are they giving? a 20 page limit, but they're expecting three pages of their contract to be signed and initialed and included. Like that's just really weird. And if you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself like, that's really weird. Why would anybody do that? Yes, I agree. Why would anybody do that? But they do. Like I see it enough that it's come up enough that I put it on this list to talk to you about. And I've heard other consultants complain about it too. These are not just all me. I've been compiling in the last six or so months the, the most common complaints about RFQs that I've heard from my fellow private consultants. And related to that is the issue of not putting your sections in a sensible order. So let's say you have a statement of understanding that you require from your consultants. I think that's fair. But sometimes the way people word them, the, what they want to hear about in that statement of understanding is not all that different than what they want in the cover letter. So you're making people sort of say things twice, making it more redundant than it needs to be. But also I've seen where people wanted a statement of understanding like in the middle of the RFQ response and that's kind of weird to me. I could see if it's the second thing, maybe after your cover letter, because you're kind of setting things up and then you're going to explain more about what you're going to do for them in the statement of understanding, because the cover letter is more about your experience and background. That makes sense. Or let's say you're putting it at the end. So the statement of understanding is the last thing in there. That could also make sense because you've started building your case all along for 
your experience with your team overview and your resumes and stuff, then you get to the end and then you can use that statement of understanding to say, this is what I can do for you. But if you're gonna do an RFP and ask for proposals, it's weird to ask for both a statement of understanding and a list of proposed items, action items, like that, again, you're making people be redundant. And then especially if you're gonna impose a page limit on top of that, you're making people more or less say things twice and that's cutting into how much information that they could give you that could potentially be more valuable if they've only got a 20 page limit or whatever. I saw a 15 page limit recently and I was like, oof. You know, if you've got more than three people on your team, you're not gonna be able to fit that in 15 pages. Especially if you're trying to make it kind of cool and graphic and user friendly and show off that your skill set that you can put together a plan that, that looks nice and has some breathing room in it. You know, if it looked like it was typed in Microsoft Word, yeah, you could fit all that crap into five pages, but would it look good? Would it be visually interesting and appealing? Would people want to read it? No. So give people some flexibility to express their maximum potential for user friendliness in, in that page limit. Cramming words down people's throats is not the way to write good plans, so let people reflect their ability to do that in their response to your RFQ. Keeping those sections in a sensible order, again, is a way to let people build a case throughout their response why you should hire them. They can start at square one and build up to some sort of finale, but not if the order is all jumbled around. I saw a couple sub area plan RFQs recently that the order was just a nightmare. Um, and, and these were, one was in Indiana, one was in Michigan. The, and the orders were just so weird. I felt awkward coming up with a response. And then on one of them, I had teamed with a buddy and he was relying on me to put together all the information he sent me and then add my stuff in because I'm the graphics person, which was fine. But when I sent him the PDF, he was like, I think you should move all of this stuff around. This order makes no sense. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but that's what the RFQ, <laughs> that's what the RFQ asked for. And he was like, oh, really? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, oh, and I was like, yeah, I know. So maybe if you have time, send your RFQ at least to the other planners in the office and get some feedback before you publish it. Be like, does this make sense? You know, because it may make complete sense in your mind, but if you're not someone who's responded to an RFP, RFP ever, or, you know, not in the last 20 years, then um, the order might not actually make as much sense as you think it is just because you know you've been doing it for so long in a certain way doesn't mean that that's actually the most user-friendly way to put that out there and again you want to you want to enable your potential consultants to put their best foot forward and writing good RFQs allows people to do that so I'd be interested to hear your thoughts this could be a two-part episode I could do another part in the future if you're a private consultant and you've had some frustrations with responding to RFQs that I haven't covered here, please let me know. 
or if you have questions that you would like to get answered on a Hello City Health edition, I'm happy to do that. If you have ideas for future episodes or would like to be a guest on a future episode, all of those things, please write to me at hellocitypodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at hellocitypod, Instagram at hellocitypodcast. And if you would like to see the visual version of this episode, I won't need a bleeped version because I didn't swear. But if you would rather watch on YouTube, I have a YouTube channel at Hello City Podcast. This isn't going to be a particularly visual one because there's no need to have a visual component, I don't think. But I did do a visual version of the recent Turning Japanese episode that was full of pictures I took on my third trip to Japan. So if you find that interesting, you can find it on YouTube or you can link through from my webpage, hellocitypodcast.com. So as always, I really appreciate you listening. Please rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you like what you hear, it really does help get the podcast out there better than anything else. Please subscribe if you're on some sort of platform that allows you to do that. I am very grateful for your attention and enthusiasm. And I really love hearing from listeners, so don't hesitate to write me. We'll be back next week while I'll have a nice guest who's going to talk about some regional planning issues, which I'm sure will be very interesting. So please tune in again next week. And remember, make no small plans. Have a great day.